Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Leading off, we're going to give you the good news and the bad news concerning the Omicron virus, which is now spreading like wildfire around the planet Earth. Well, yes, the bad news, most of it is bad news. It turns out that people that have been previously infected by a previous version of the coronavirus are not protected against the Omicron virus. This is bad news because it was once thought that the antibodies that you build up after being infected with, let's say, the Delta virus would carry over and help you to fight off the Omicron virus. Nope, it doesn't work that way. However, there's a little bit of good news that I'll talk about. It turns out that even though the Omicron virus is probably twice as infectious as the earlier Delta virus, it probably is not as lethal as the Delta virus. But, of course, that still has to be checked. Hasn't been checked yet. Also, Einstein is back in the news, believe it or not. Einstein's papers... Some of the most important papers that he wrote concerning general relativity sold in Paris for an auction price of $13 million, far beyond expectations. $13 million for a manuscript dating back to around 1914, just before he published his famous theory of general relativity. So, Einstein still casts a spell. People are still fascinated with how this mortal could have been able to see through some of the deepest mysteries of Mother Nature. And speaking about Mother Nature, the Webb Telescope, well, is being ready for launch, but it keeps on getting delayed. Now it's being pushed back to December 22. That's right, the earliest the launch would be for the Webb Space Telescope is December 22. And then we'll also say a few things about a new asteroid that's whizzing by the Earth, and it'll just graze the Earth's orbit by 2.4 million miles. It's about a 1,000 feet across. A rock that big could easily take out a city on the planet Earth if it were to hit. Well, let's now jump right in and summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The least story, as we said before, is, well, the bad news about the Omicron virus. It's spreading like wildfire around the United States. In fact, right here in New York City, not too far from where I'm sitting right now, there was a Comic-Con anime convention at the Javits Center in Manhattan. 50,000 people passed through that convention. And yes, it turned out that some of them were in fact infected with the Omicron virus. Every day, every day more states of the Union are registering their Omicron illness. And it turns out that perhaps, perhaps the virus has been circulating around the world perhaps a month before it was finally nailed back around Thanksgiving time in South Africa. In other words, the cat has been out of the bag perhaps for more than a month. So when nations close off their borders, in some sense, it's too late. The cat is out of the bag. Also bad news, 
people who were previously infected with, let's say, the Delta virus are not immune, N-O-T, not immune from the Omicron virus. This is bad news because it means that the Omicron virus has the ability to evade the antibodies that you build up if you're vaccinated or you have previously gotten, let's say, the Delta virus. Now, it's not clear, however, if you've been vaccinated, whether or not you can still get the Omicron virus. That's not clear. But it turns out that many of the people coming down with the Omicron virus in South Africa previously were infected by the Delta virus and the antibodies that they got from the Delta virus didn't help them at all. So that's something to think about. Also, we're getting some statistics now concerning its characteristics. How more infectious is it than the Delta? Perhaps twice as infectious as the Delta. And just remember that it only took a few months. It only took a few months for Delta to emerge as the number one virus on the planet Earth. Many people expect that perhaps it'll only take a month or two for the Omicron to take the mantle away and become the deadliest virus on the planet Earth. Now, there is some good news to this, believe it or not. And the good news is that, well, all the numbers are not in. They're still looking at exceptions to the rule. But one thing does stand out. In South Africa, where the virus was first found to emerge, it turns out that the people that came down with the virus had milder symptoms than previously thought. So in other words, there's one theory that says that the Omicron virus is in fact twice as infectious as the previous Delta virus, but is probably not as lethal. However, we don't know for sure, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Also, a little bit of good news. It turns out that the RNA vaccine can be made much quicker than the usual method, which requires incubating a weakened virus in an egg. Using the DNA and RNA methodology developed for other viruses, it turns out that an RNA vaccine could be made perhaps within a month. And so, and so Pfizer and Moderna are already hot on the trail to make their version of a virus that specifically attacks the Omicron virus. So is it more lethal? We don't know. It is, in fact, more infectious, perhaps twice as infectious, but it's not known how much more lethal it is compared to uh, other versions of the virus. Now, President Biden has come on stating that one thing that people can do is A, get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated. Two, if you have the chance, get the booster. Because of the fact that even though we're not sure, we think the booster gives you an added layer of protection. And that's why if you haven't already, get vaccinated and get the booster if possible. Also, Einstein's papers sold for $13 million in Paris, way beyond the expectation of the auction house. So what caused so much excitement? Well, it turns out that Einstein destroyed 
many of his original manuscripts leading up to E equals MC squared in 1905 and his theory of general relativity in 1915. However, one set of calculations was done with a co-author, Michel Besso, and he kept the manuscript that they worked on. He didn't throw it away. He kept it. He kept it for posterity. And so there you can see in Einstein's handwriting and Michel Besso's handwriting together, they were working out the details and consequences of the general theory of relativity, which gives us black holes, big bangs, and uh, is a basically the architecture by which we can discuss the entire universe. And so, because Michel Besso did not destroy that manuscript, it is one of the few manuscripts, a working manuscript of what they were actually doing around 1914, a year before they finally published that path-breaking paper on general relativity. We should also point out that previous Einstein letters have also gone for a, a lot of money. There was that famous God letter, a letter in which Einstein lays out his position on God, the fact that he believed in the God of Spinoza, that it's a God of harmony and beauty, rather than a personal God. That letter sold for a few million. But this one takes a cake. $13 million was the winning bid to get a working draft of the creation of one of the greatest theories in all of physics, the general theory of relativity. And also news from outer space. The Webb Telescope is finally getting ready for launch. The Webb Telescope is a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, but it has problems, just like the Hubble Space Telescope had problems. Remember when the Hubble Space Telescope first went up into orbit, it was nearsighted. That's right, the lenses were not drawn properly. Everything came out fuzzy, as if the telescope was nearsighted. And a rescue mission, a second mission of the space shuttle was sent up in order to put, well, corrective glasses on the Hubble Space Telescope. So we get these fantastic pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope because there was not one, but two, two space shuttle missions that were required to put it into the proper orbit. Well, let's hope this time we don't have the same problem. The Webb Space Telescope is different from the Hubble. The Hubble Space Telescope was basically looking at the optical and ultraviolet frequencies. However, the Webb Space Telescope looks at the infrared frequencies, frequencies that are emitted by hot objects, for example. One advantage of using infrared telescopes rather than the visible and ultraviolet is that you can see through clouds much better, and you can see perhaps extrasolar planets. In fact, that's one of the payoffs. It's believed that the Webb Space Telescope, which is nine times more powerful in resolution and ability than the Hubble Space Telescope, is believed that the Webb State Space Telescope can actually photograph planets orbiting around other stars in the universe. That would be incredible. Think about that. Able to take pictures of planets orbiting around other stars in the universe. Well, we'll have to see how that goes.
but also speaking about outer space. There's a new satellite that's going to come whizzing by the planet Earth on December 11, and it's going to just whiz right by the Earth at a distance of 2.4 million miles, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump as far as the solar system is concerned. And how big is this asteroid? Well, it's pretty big. It's about a thousand feet across. Think about that, a thousand feet across. It's enough to wipe out a large city on the planet Earth. So if it were to hit, God forbid, it would hit the Earth with a force of hundreds of hydrogen bombs, enough to take out a large city. Now, believe it or not, these objects come whizzing by the Earth all the time. But as far as we can tell, they will not have a direct hit. Perhaps in this century, we're not going to see a direct hit. However, we should realize that these near-Earth objects, these NEOs, they cannot be tracked if they're too small. If they're smaller than a football field, then NASA has a hard time cataloging and locking in on them. So this encyclopedia of extrasolar planets is a catalog of planets that are larger than a football field. If they're smaller than a football field, they can still cause a lot of damage, like the city busters that hit Russia twice, twice in the last 100 years. Th those asteroids were probably no more than just the size of an apartment building, smaller than a football field, and yet they cause devastation throughout Russia. And so realize that these things are real. And they come whizzing by all the time. But historically, we were clueless. We were clueless about their existence. Throughout human history, we've had near misses of asteroids. And some people even think we've had hits that are recorded in the Bible. There's one theory that says that Saddam, uh, that uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were cities that were knocked out by an asteroid that destroyed those cities. So it wasn't sin and debauchery that did it. It was an asteroid. Well, now we have to realize that the next goal should be to track asteroids that are smaller than a football field. But that's extremely difficult because our telescopes are simply not that good and our ability to knock out these asteroids is basically non-existent yet. That's where the DART mission comes in. Just a few weeks ago, NASA launched a new type of rocket into outer space, the DART missile. It's a satellite that will reach and actually impact deliberately on an asteroid by September 2022, by next year. Now, if you've watched Armageddon and Deep Impact, you think that our astronauts can reach out there and lock onto one of these killer asteroids and destroy it with a hydrogen bomb. Nope, it doesn't work that way. First of all, we don't have any rockets that are capable of sending humans that far into outer space. The last time we could do that was with the Saturn rocket back uh, when we still had a moon program. But the space shuttle simply spins wheels around the planet Earth. That's right. The space shuttle is not designed to go into deep space at all. So one day, if we were to detect an asteroid coming our way, we would be helpless. I repeat, helpless. There is no known way 
that we can deflect an asteroid coming our way. That's why the DART mission is so important. It's the first time in history that NASA has deliberately targeted an asteroid for a direct impact so that we can calculate whether or not the nudge is sufficient to push it out of harm's way. So that's the goal, not to blow up an asteroid, because then you have lots of little asteroids coming at you, which are perhaps more dangerous than the original asteroid. But the whole purpose is to nudge it a little bit, nudge it so that it will miss the planet Earth on its path throughout the solar system. Now, let me repeat. So far, NASA claims that there are no objects, near-Earth objects, that are dangerous that's going to hit the Earth within the next 100 years or so. However, how confident are we about that fact? Well, there is a caveat that we have to add. And that is, first of all, if you are smaller than a football field, you can go whizzing right by and not be detected at all. Our satellites can only detect objects larger than a football field. Second of all, there is one unlikely scenario that a comet could catch you off guard. Now, comets are different from asteroids. Comets are made out of ice cubes, and they have a tail, a tail caused by sunlight, which sublimates some of the ice, causing it to vaporize, creating a tail. However, comets come in two varieties. One variety is the short-period comets, which are periodic, and we can track them. We track them, and we know when they're going to come whizzing by, like Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet comes whizzing through the solar system about once every 76 years, like clockwork. However, there's another kind of comet that can evade all detection systems. These are long-period comets, comets way out there beyond the solar system in what is called the Oort cloud. For most cases, these comets are stationary. They're so far out and out of space, they can barely be nudged by the gravitational field of the sun, and they're pretty much stationary. But sometimes, a passing rock, a passing comet, an asteroid, something nudges one of these comets, and then they come barreling toward the planet Earth. Well, first of all, if they were to go behind the sun, we would see no evidence of them. They have no tail, and because they're behind the sun, we can't even see them at all. We, they could catch us totally off guard. And then when they came outside from the sun's uh, glare, we would have just a few weeks warning before the impact on the planet Earth. Now, of course, that's the worst case scenario. We don't want to scare people. We don't think it's going to happen. But these objects are not trackable. I repeat, long period comets are not trackable because they come in orbits whose periodicity could be measured in tens of thousands of years, or they are making just one pass, one pass throughout the solar system. So it means that it would be very hard to detect. And once they come out from behind the sun, we would basically have just a few weeks warning before it were to hit 
the planet Earth. And so even though with confidence we can say that large objects, large asteroids, that is rocks, will not hit the Earth within 100 years, all bets are off when it comes to long-period comets. Now, what could happen, of course, would be devastating. Look at Mexico. The Yucatan of Mexico has a gigantic crater about 200 miles in diameter, and it is the remnant of an asteroid perhaps six miles across that hit the Yucatan of Mexico, causing tremendous destruction, which we think wiped out the dinosaurs. In fact, we see evidence of this by looking at the debris, by looking at life forms on the planet Earth. After that uh, asteroid hit the planet Earth, for example, the large dinosaurs were pretty much wiped out. Only smaller organisms, like, for example, mammals, like our ancestors, survived, and birds. Birds being smaller could also survive, and they can probably fly to areas far away from the devastation. So birds are dinosaurs, left over from the impact that hit the Yucatan of Mexico 66 million years ago, wiping out life, almost 90% of life as we know it. However, our ancestors managed to find a way to evade the devastation. How? Well, we're not sure, but our ancestors were warm-blooded. Now, there's a difference between warm-blooded and cold-blooded animals in the morning. If you go to the desert, the first thing you realize is that cold-blooded lizards, for example, have to bake themselves in the sunlight in the morning to raise their body temperature to get enough energy so they can forage for food and find mates and what have you. So, in other words, cold-blooded animals in the morning have to raise their temperature by basking in the sunlight. Now, warm-blooded animals, their temperature is usually around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, constantly. Even when it's cold outside, body temperature is 98.6 degrees and as a consequence, when they get up in the morning, it's up and at them. They immediately look for food, they're up to speed, and they then can start to forage for food, find shelter, find mates, reproduce, what have you. So we think, though we cannot prove, we think that the cold-blooded dinosaurs, assuming that they were cold-blooded, were probably too lethargic and too slow in order to search for food, and as a consequence, the plant eaters died. The plant eaters died because there were no plants to eat, plus, of course, they were uh, simply too cold to begin the process of hunting for food. Once the plant eaters died, then the meat eaters also died, and that, we think, is how the dinosaurs died 66 million years ago. Now, could it happen again? Well, there's one escape clause that we should mention, and that is the asteroid Apophis. The asteroid Apophis, we think, will miss the planet Earth when it whizzes around the Earth twice, twice in the next few decades. However, we're not sure. So where did this uncertainty come from? I thought that 
Well, most people think that we know the trajectories of these objects exactly. Well, that's not true. You see, Apophis will make a first pass around the Earth and then swing around and make a second pass. Both passes, Apophis will probably miss the Earth. However, it's going to go through the atmosphere of the Earth. That is, it's so close that it will actually fly underneath our satellites. Think about that. It'll come that close to the planet Earth. It's going to skim through our atmosphere. At that point, you're going to get atmospheric friction, which is going to make the trajectory of the comet basically unpredictable. So in other words, when NASA says that chances are Apophis will miss the planet Earth on both attempts, that's not quite true. We have to realize that in principle, that statement is probably correct, but not with 100% accuracy. We simply don't know what happens when a planet goes through the atmosphere of the planet Earth. That's a very rare phenomenon. Usually asteroids come whizzing by way outside the atmosphere of the planet Earth, but Apophis will make a very close trajectory underneath our satellites going through the atmosphere. So on the second pass, the second pass of Apophis around the planet Earth, we simply don't know for sure its trajectory because it's hard to predict how large rocks will move in the atmosphere of the Earth. So there's a small chance, not large, but there's a small chance that on the second pass, it'll, it'll, its orbit will be nudged so much by atmospheric disturbances that it could, in fact, hit the planet Earth. And at that point, well, it's not going to be pretty. Scientists have been able to analyze the asteroid that hit the Yucatan of Mexico back uh, 66 million years ago, and they have a time frame for how it happened, and they actually have rocks, actual rocks left over from the original asteroid. Think about that. We actually have fragments of the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, making possible us. And the evidence indicates that the impact happened in stages. Stage one was the initial flash of light and heat, enough to incinerate uh, many dinosaurs. It was a flash of light that traveled at the speed of light, instantly, practically, right after the collision. There was this tremendous blast of light and heat coming from the impact. Then the shock wave. The shock wave traveled maybe a little bit faster than the speed of sound, which is much slower than the speed of light. The shock wave would be enough to flatten, flatten almost all the vegetation in the area and cause widespread destruction. Then a rain of meteors. Because of the impact, tremendous amounts of rock were lofted into the atmosphere and came down as blazing meteors. And so all over the Gulf of Mexico, think about that, a firestorm of meteors coming from the impact of the object with the Yucatan of Mexico. Then the tidal wave. We're not sure how big the tidal wave was, but perhaps it was a half a mile tall. That tidal wave hit because the Gulf of Mexico, well, it was halfway in the Gulf of Mexico, halfway in the Yucatan, and 
the tidal wave was enough to cause much of the United States, or what became the United States, to be flooded. And you can even see evidence of all these things, evidence of flooding, evidence of the meteor shower, evidence of the impact itself. When you look at minerals around Louisiana and the Midwest. And we even think we know the angle at which the asteroid hit the Yucatan of Mexico. We think it came in from a shallow angle from the south, which meant that much of the rock was blown north into North America. I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku inviting you for the second half of Exploration when we talk about life in outer space. What are the probabilities that there are other civilizations in space, perhaps as advanced or perhaps even more advanced than our civilization? Stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration when we bring on Dr. Robert Hagen, an astrobiologist about life in outer space. Stay tuned for the second half of Exploration. to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about life in outer space, as told to us by an astrobiologist, Dr. Robert Hagen. And if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, or go to my Facebook site. We have 5 million fans on Facebook. Or check out some of my five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And, well, that's what I do for a living. I work to complete Einstein's dream of an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, The God Equation, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. But once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on an astrobiologist, Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis, to talk about, well, what's out there. We've discovered thousands of planets orbiting other stars, but are there other life forms on these planets? Stay tuned. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh, man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio, that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back, and we'd collect butterflies, and we'd collect frogs, and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I loved looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky, and Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on. When I was 
in high school, I moved to northern New Jersey. And northern New Jersey is a just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities. And I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey. Go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals. And that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay. Now, you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been brought to life by major new funding through NASA and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller, young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago, his mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Yuri had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown, and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. The amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth 
of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years, and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer, and we're still a long way from knowing. But this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical origin of life going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans look like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sh sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean, and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight, but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth where all three of those ingredients come together are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast. Completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth, but plants in turn get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called phot photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating uh, device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? 
That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy, for example, from plants or from sunlight, is converted through a process called oxidation reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very what are called reducing fluids come out from the, below the ocean surface and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay, now the astronomer Fred Hoyle had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off. And therefore, life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks. Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars, and then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a Mars-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space, and those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed, they could contain microbes. And those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars and we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. 
It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the earth is four and a half billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question. And a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole Earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, food depends on proteins. Uh, proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, there are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, and it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever. And it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose. DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in its environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You, you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else will get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, 
we always see aliens from outer space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally. So they can interchange、uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that, in some sense, DNA really is preferable. And that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspects of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA. But I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code. And that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if, even if it's. There is a code on other worlds that it would be very different from ours, so I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life, but I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that if another DNA got off the ground and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA, or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA, I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us, and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules. Used in DNA and RNA are called right handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting, there's a new product out. You can buy left handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener which gives you no calories. It's a great invention, it's a great idea. So, if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed and they used left handed sugars and right handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space.、Uh, amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there w a s an even more primitive structure even before RNA. So, what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there s so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule. It's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose, there are some minerals that attract the bases.、Um, but there are other neat ideas out there. In the book, Genesis, I describe 
an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks, little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire. That soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases, the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, and that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Platt's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Oh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA, the ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. There's something called the citric acid cycle that seems to be built into every living thing. And there are a few other chemical pathways, the ability to take nitrogen and convert it to ammonia, for example. That's also fundamental. That's a way of using the element nitrogen in biological systems. So there are a few chemical pathways that we find in every living thing, and those we believe are the most primitive chemical pathways that point us to something about the earliest life. And where are these organisms that are the most ancient, most primitive forms of life on the Earth? Are they in the bottom of the ocean? Right now, the most primitive organisms that we know of are all in very extreme environments in places where the acidity is very high, in places where it's very cold, in hot, deep hydrothermal vents. And people have two ideas about that. One is the possible, very real possibility that life originated in one of these extreme environments. The other possibility is that life originated near the surface, like Stanley Miller would say, but because of those nasty asteroids and meteors and comets that kept blasting the surface, the only life that survived those last insults was life that had adapted to the deep, hot, protected environments within the Earth's crust. So either way, those are the most primitive organisms that we see today. Well, that ends our interview with Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis. He's an astrobiologist. And let me conclude by making some personal thoughts about intelligent life in outer space. Well, since we've cataloged over 4,000 exoplanets orbiting other stars in the galaxy, and since there are perhaps 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, 
And because on average, every single star in the galaxy, on average, has a planet going around it, I think the probability that there is life in the galaxy is near 100%. And then there's also the possibility that a fraction of them have advanced civilizations. Now, any civilization that can reach the Earth from deep space and create all these UFO sightings, any civilization that can do that must be perhaps 100,000 to a million years more advanced than us in technology. So again, I'm not saying that the aliens are out there. All I'm saying is that the probability is near 100% that there are other living life forms in the galaxy, a fraction of which are intelligent, and if they have technology, perhaps 100,000 to maybe a million years more advanced than us, maybe, just maybe they would be able to break the light barrier and perhaps reach the Earth. And then, what should we do? Well, some scientists say that we should reach out and advertise our existence to aliens in outer space. However, I think that's a bad idea. After all, remember what happened to the Aztecs when they greeted Cortez? Montezuma made the biggest mistake in ancient history. He assumed that Cortez was a god, when actually Cortez was a, was a bloodthirsty pirate. So my personal point of view is that, yes, we should listen for intelligent life forms in outer space, but we should not try to contact them until we know what their intentions are and how advanced they are. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and you've been listening to Exploration. And if you want to find out more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U dot O-R-G, or go to my Facebook site, we have 5 million fans on Facebook. And check out my five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Good day. <laughs>